books and reading at their very best are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Carrie and I are on vacation this week. We're getting refreshed, renewed, and most importantly, reading for our upcoming season three beginning August 5th. So today we have a rebroadcast. We reached way back in the archives to our first season and one of our very early guests, Amy Attaway of the Kentucky Shakespeare Theater. If you are a book nerd like us, it just doesn't seem like summer in Louisville without seeing one of the great free performances under the stars in Central Park of one of the Bard's plays. Kentucky Shakespeare recently announced that their summer season in person is canceled for 2020. But in September, they will present a digital season filmed on the Central Park stage to celebrate their 60th year. They also have been presenting all nine productions of the 2017 through 2019 seasons available for viewing on their Facebook page and YouTube channel. In this episode, Amy talks about directing last year's history play, King Henry IV Part Two. To see a version of this on the big screen, you can stream The King, starring Timothy Chalamet, on Netflix, which came out late last year. Today on the show, we welcome Amy Attaway, Associate Artistic Director for Kentucky Shakespeare. She will share with us her favorite Shakespeare characters, what is so special to her about live theater, and how memorizing monologues makes you popular at cocktail parties. We are talking all things Shakespeare and the many programs Kentucky Shakespeare has to offer. Today in the studio, we have Amy Attaway, who is the director of Henry IV Part Two with the Kentucky Shakespeare Festival, and we're going to talk to her about the new play that she's doing and all that good stuff. So welcome, Amy. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Can you tell us just first just a little bit about yourself? <laughs> um, well, I'm from Louisville. I grew up here, and I, so I like to joke that I keep trying to move away, and Louisville <laughs> keeps bringing me back. Uh, which is kind of true. Um, I went away to school for college, and I came back after that. And then I moved to Cincinnati for a little bit, came back after that. I moved to New York for a little bit, came back after that. You the, just can't get just, away. I just can't get away. The The last time I really moved away and came back was for a, a job at Actors Theater that I had for five years as the associate director of the Apprentice Intern Company. And when I left that job, I was really sure I was going to have to leave because I knew that the next step for me in my career was going to be um, associate artistic director of a smaller theater company. And so I was like, well, there aren't any others in Louisville where I can work, so I'm going to have to just, I'm going to have to move. So I was sending out resumes and freelancing, and then I met Matt Wallace. <laughs> that was right around the time that he took over Kentucky Shakespeare, and, uh, and he offered me a guest directing job for his first summer. And so I was a guest director for three summers, and then and now I'm associate artistic director for the last three years. How did you get the bug, the theater bug? 
You know, that's a good question. I think it's just ingrained somehow. I started acting when I was really, really young. Parents aren't in the arts at all. My grandmother was a singer and, and piano player, so I guess it's somehow in the blood. My uncle's a dancer. So it's it's in it's in the gene pool somehow, but but not in my immediate family. So did you have to bone up on Shakespeare like when you when you first started or were you already a Shakespeare fiend? No, that's a good question. I wasn't a Shakespeare fiend. I, I love Shakespeare. I love seeing Shakespeare and reading Shakespeare always. But when, when Matt offered me the job, first of all, I was like, well, you know I'm a new play director, right? Because I was working at Actors Theater and directing contemporary plays and brand new plays in the Humana Festival working with playwrights. And I also started my own theater company, Theater 502, where we were working with playwrights on brand new plays. And so that was what I'd been doing for most of my career. And so suddenly Shakespeare came about, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure about it, but I was glad for the challenge. And now I feel like now I'm, now I'm a Shakespeare director. <laughs> I could see that that would be pretty intimidating. I would feel intimidated just trying to wrap my head around well, Shakespeare. The, and The great thing about Kentucky Shakespeare is that it's been around for so long. It's This is our 59th season in the park. And most of the people that we work with on a regular basis are really, really smart. So as a director, it's my job to not always have the answers, right? It's my job to hear the answers. I mean, not that I, I'm saying I don't know things. I do a lot of research and I've learned a ton about performing Shakespeare and especially about the history of the English monarchy. I can tell you all about that. I'm bored <laughs> everyone to death. But... You know, I'm surrounded by all these super smart designers and actors and, and other directors and teachers. We're, we're all of us learning from each other all the time. Can you think back, what was your first exposure or experience with Shakespeare? I'm not exactly sure I remember my first. I remember a couple of early ones, but I will tell you that... The, this series that I'm directing right now, which is um, the, the Henriad, as the Shakespeare nerds call it, um, which starts with Richard II, Henry IV, Part One, Part Two, and then Henry V, and we're doing it right now over four years with a lot of the same actors doing the repeating roles, and I saw this series the last time Kentucky Shakespeare did it, which was in the 90s, exactly my four years of high school. So I saw it in the park, sitting on a picnic blanket, under the stars, Louisville, Kentucky. That's and pretty cool. It was very cool. Yeah. And, and so that was my connection, heart connection to Shakespeare and to the company, Kentucky Shakespeare, specifically when, when Matt first reached out to me about this job. So I teach some Shakespeare to students, and I usually try to pick Macbeth or Hamlet, mm -hmm. you know, just, I just feel like really meaty. So do you feel like it's hard to just because people know of Hamlet, Macbeth, and Romeo and Juliet, do you feel like it's hard to do the history plays? Sometimes. It's hard because because people don't know it. You know, people who aren't who don't know Shakespeare have heard of those plays you just mentioned, Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, sometimes even Midsummer, you know. And so we get like easy audiences for those. Also much ado, like anything that's recently been made into a movie, you know, people understand it and they get it and they have some reference point to it. People think with the histories that they're gonna A be boring and B, they're not gonna understand them. Um, and so it's our job, my job specifically as the director, to make that not be so. For all of us at Kentucky Shakespeare, our main goal with everything we do is accessibility. And that means 
everything from taking our work all over the state and all over the city into different neighborhoods, but it also means the way we work with the language and the way we work with Shakespeare performance. We don't want Shakespeare to be this like snooty, snooty up on a pedestal thing. We want it to be a thing like of and for the people. Um, and I think that as we've gone along these past six years under the Matt Wallace regime, people, I hope, are starting to know that. They're starting to know that they can come see this history play that they've never heard of, and they're going to find that it's funny and that there are characters they'll come to care about and, you know, and that sometimes there's fighting and it's kind of awesome. Um, but mostly it's not, like, like people are people, you know, and the stories that you see in Shakespeare, the struggle between the prince and the king is the same struggle as between the football player and his son who wants to be quarterback. You know, it's, it's people are people. So can you give us just a brief summary of what the play is about? So like I said before, this is part of a series, right? So the story of the series is the story of the Lancaster dynasty in England, right? Henry IV becomes king, and then he dies, and then his son, Henry V, becomes king. So writ large, that's the story we're telling here. This play is mostly about Falstaff, who's the iconic comic character of Shakespeare. He's the funny fat knight, the drunk who has a heart of gold, who's always getting in trouble, who's the prince's misleader. We see the prince having fun in bars in East Cheap, like rubbing elbows with the common folk because of Falstaff. So the story of this play, of Henry IV Part II specifically, is the story of Falstaff's demise. They've just come back from the big war that happens at the end of Henry IV Part I, wherein Hal, the prince, has proven himself to his father. And, the, and Falstaff has also fought in the war. And then we come back, and they're both sort of back to their old tricks again. So we see this play. We see Falstaff trying to reclaim his glory days. And we see Hal trying to still have fun and reckon with the notion that his father's really sick now. And that this whole king thing that has been hanging over his head from his birth might actually happen. Right, so I like to think of this play as a human story because there aren't any big battles. There, there isn't any big, giant historical shifts in this play. Um, it's just, it's a play about people. It sounds like there's a lot of internal wrangling that's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So one of my questions is, do you all have a philosophy as far as modernizing something or setting it? to make it look a little bit different because I think sometimes people think that Shakespeare is going to look a certain way mm -hmm. when it's performed and it doesn't always meet those expectations. So does Kentucky Shakespeare have a sort of a philosophy and how does that relate to this current play? Well, so this is our 59th season. And so the company has done Shakespeare in a million ways over that period of time. Since um, Matt became producing artistic director and the two of us have been working together for the past six years, we've mostly stuck to mostly Renaissance looks, but not entirely. You know, we did a sort of restoration period, much ado. Now we've got As You Like It set in post-Civil War Kentucky, new bluegrass music and live musicians on stage. So we don't, we don't stick to it religiously. Um, for this history cycle, I'm doing my best to set the plays um, in the period about which they were written. So in Shakespeare's day, they would have 
performed in clothes and in their contemporary Renaissance clothes. So that's how you see Shakespeare a lot. For this Game of Kings cycle, we're, we're sticking to the late medieval period, 1399-ish, when the events of these plays happen. How hard is it to direct a play that is a part two? So how, how do you get the audience up to speed on what happened in part one if they didn't see it last year? That's such a good question. First thing to know is that you don't need to have seen part one to see part two at all. It's not, it's not like, you know, Game of Thrones. Right. Um, it's not like that. We're going to be completely lost. Like, who are all these people if you didn't see part one? And we do a couple of things to help people get up to speed if they want to, because it's, you'd enjoy it in a different way if you know all the characters already. So we have a, a little prologue that we've written. We call it our previously on um, that we've done for the past two years. So and we'll do it again next year for the, for the last, the finale of the tetralogy. So we have a little previously on where we like show the characters and we tell people what has happened and what's about to happen. It's brief. And we've, for the past two years, we've produced comic short video, also telling people what happened in the last play and what they can expect in this play, using pictures of the actual actors plus funny sounds and funny text and in contemporary language. So I know Shakespeare's plays are, I think most people think they fall into either tragedies or comedies. This is neither of those. It's a history. Mm -hmm. But it probably has some elements of tragedy and comedy. Does it lean one way or the other? This one specifically leans pretty heavily comedy okay. until the end when it gets really sad. <laughs> you know what the thing the the way to tell whether it's a comedy or a tragedy is whether everybody gets married or everybody dies. Right. Right. So neither of those things happen in this play. At the beginning, we spend a lot of time with Falstaff and in the taverns, and there's a lot there's a lot of comedy in the first act. Toward the end of the play. You know, the king is getting older and he eventually dies. Spoiler, historical spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> king, the king dies and the next guy becomes king. So it does, there's a little, little tragedy at the end. How fun was it to work with the character of Falstaff? That is probably one of Shakespeare's most famous characters. Yeah, absolutely. It's been amazing. So the actor who's playing Falstaff is Barrett Cooper. Um, and he's a fantastic actor. And he's he's one of the company members who knows a ton about Shakespeare. Um, he's never played this role before, but, uh, but he's done a lot of research and reading about it, as have I now, but I hadn't when we started on this journey. Um, and so, so he and I, last year, when we realized we were going to be tackling this thing together, we talked a lot about what, what our fall staff was going to be and what we wanted to make sure to highlight and, um, and, and what was the, were the most important things about Falstaff. And one of the things that we both agreed on immediately is that, is that he wants to be lovable. Like, we want to care for him. And I think that you'll see that. If you come see this Henry IV Part II, you'll, you'll see why everyone loves him. And so I won't give you this spoiler, but what happens to Falstaff at the end feels even more tragic because you've come to love him so much for the two plus hours even watching him and for the two years that you've been falling in love with him um you get to see what what happens to him in a pretty rewarding way so you mentioned that you have to do research so what does that research look like are you having to just kind of stick with the text itself or are you having to read other texts what does that look like the yeah, process both all um so we we have a dramaturg at kentucky shakespeare who does our, our trimming our text trimming um and who's 
great at the historical research, um, Gregory Maupin. Um, and so he gives the actors a script with footnotes baked in, which is super useful. We all prefer at Kentucky Shakespeare, we all favor the Arden edition of the plays. So a lot of us work from that with the footnotes and the preamble notes are really smart and well-researched. I also read a book called Shakespeare's English Kings, which has been super helpful for me. And I've also done a couple of, a little bit of other just general research about the history of, of English monarchies. One of the most ridiculous rabbit holes I went down was like an in-depth research of the heraldry because we it was it was the first, it was in Richard II where we had you know this army and this army and we needed to differentiate between the two of them and 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 I I went down this rabbit hole you all for eight weeks <laughs> just so that I could tell the costume designer what to paint on the wow. on the armor of this oh my gosh and why why suddenly does this one have fingernails that are blue and like what is this griffin that's different than that lion it was um, it was intense. So I want to know a little bit of the nuts and bolts. So I know you all have three plays that you do throughout the summer. And you do each one for several weeks. And then you switch to another one. Mm -hmm. Do you use all the same set? Because I know later on, after you've done those three plays, then you sort of alternate Mm -hmm. doing them. What is the... The logistics. Yes. The logistics of switching around and doing all that. Yes. Okay. So first thing to know is that the acting company, with a few exceptions, the acting company does all three plays. And we rehearse all three plays at once, which is insane. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's completely crazy, but it works. Um, so of course, we, you know, we, we foreground the first play first, but we, are, we do rehearse all three at once. In terms of the set, uh, it depends on, on the, the three plays. This year, the three plays are are very different in feel and time period. So the the bones of the set, which are the two stage houses that are that have big doors that open and close and you can they're above levels you can stand on are are always there. And the three trees that surround the set, we call them the three sisters, are always there, of course. So that's always part of it. But so for as you like it, the set designer, Carl Anderson, has transformed it just by adding a few platforms into a forest, right, into the Forest of Arden. Um, for Henry, it's it's pretty much just the structures. And then we go, we have furniture and props to differentiate the different indoor settings. Um, and then the last play for King Lear, um, Matt's directing that one, and he set it in um, the year 8 BC. So it's very different feeling. The lot there's going to be a lot of stone stagecraft wow. stone work, I should say. So we do, as you said, we open the first show and we run it for two weeks while we're still rehearsing the other two during the day, and while the shops are still building the other two during the day, um, and then we do the second one, run that for two weeks, um, and that's what's happening right now. We're just heading into the second full weekend of Henry the Fourth. The reason I was a little bit late to this interview is because I was watching a run through of King Lear in the rehearsal hall right across the street. So they're, they're hard at work on King Lear. Well, and then the actors are going to have a dinner break and then go perform Henry the Fourth tonight. It's crazy town. And so then we'll do King Lear for two weeks. And then we do all three in rotating rep for two weeks. And we'll do a different play tonight. So the crew, who are amazing, will change over the set every night. That's like a well-oiled machine. That makes my head hurt just to think about all of it. It's intense. 
So is there, is there someone who has the schedule? And, and there must be. Yes. yes. Her name is Amy Attaway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's sort of true. I do, I do like Matt and I together, we keep the schedule for oh during the cold months. So there are five of us on staff full time at Kentucky Shakespeare. Five. And we have four artist educators that are on contract with us for nine months during the year, and they go out and teach and do all kinds of amazing things during the school year. And then in the summer, we have a staff of 60. So we have a production manager and a stage manager and uh, a master carpenter and a technical director, and, and all of them are keep their schedules for their departments. And the production manager and the stage manager keep the overall schedule for everybody. We do all this crazy work, 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 work to make sure that the audience has a relaxed and peaceful time. You know, we want the park, we want our stage to feel like an oasis in the middle of the city. So we make sure everything is pretty. We make sure we have the best food trucks. We make sure, you know, Will's Tavern is always open. Um, We added something this year I'm real excited about that we're calling the Kids Globe which is a, just a tent um, that we set up for an hour before the show. And we got a grant to do this specifically this year, which is great from the Fund for the Arts. And so we have a, a person, a teacher, who's in that tent every night, and kids just go and they do activities. It's all free. So we want the, our park in the summertime to be a place where families can come. You can bring your dog, come get a drink, get food from the food truck, and just relax. I mean, while you're talking about all the work that goes into these plays, it's really amazing that it's free, free, absolutely free for anybody. Even, you know, you don't have to be a resident of Louisville. Anybody can come and see it. And that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. And that goes back to what our company's all about. We want, we want Shakespeare to be non-scary and accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. Not just, not just monetarily accessible but transportation accessible you know we work we we have shuttles to bring people into the park and we work to bring our work to people but it's it's a lot of work on on the back end but it's worth it do you have a favorite shakespeare play that's such a hard question. I know the answer should be Henry well, the Fourth. Well, you could, it could also maybe be the, your favorite that you've directed. It's always or... the one I'm working on. Is my favorite. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I'm really excited to do Henry V again. It'll be my first time directing a Shakespeare play again, mm. right? So that, because that was my first um, Henry V, my first summer with Kentucky Shakespeare, and I'm going to do it again. And I'm just so, I love that play so much. It has some of the most beautiful speeches in all of Shakespeare. And to do it now with this cast, like the actor who's playing Prince Hal now, who's going to be Henry V next summer, is someone I've known for a long time. He's a fantastic actor. And he's been in this role for two years already. And he's ready. He's ready to take on Henry V. So I'm so excited to do that with him specifically and all the actors who are going to be returning. So I guess I'll say that one's my favorite right now. Is there anything from the last time you directed it that you either know that you want to do differently or know that you you definitely like the way you did it before? The cutting's going to be different for sure. Um, I did the cutting myself last time, and I ended up having to, like, chop out some big, like, plot points that aren't necessary to the overall plot of the play, but there's there important to the plot of the whole series explain to our listeners who may not know aren't aren't familiar with theater what do you mean by cutting yeah so if we did the plays as Shakespeare's company did them they would be three or four hours long okay so we try to endeavor to not make people stay in the park till midnight (laughs) uh so we we trim judiciously so it's a little bit of abridgment you're abridging it just a little bit exactly no we don't usually cut 
plot points. Um, and we don't usually, we sometimes combine characters to, to make things more efficient. But I wouldn't, it's not, abridgment's not exactly what it is. Okay. It's, it's a condensation, perhaps. But it, you get the whole story. There's nothing, there's nothing, you would never know. How does the company make the decisions about what plays you're going to do each summer? How do you choose them? Yeah, that's a good question. So Shakespeare wrote 38 plays. So that, that's how many we have to choose from every year. Um, so it, it's a, Matt makes the, the final decision, um, but we, we talk about it. And so, you know, we decided to do this tetralogy. So we knew that was it for four years. And then we usually try to do a comedy history and a tragedy every year or a comedy, a tragedy and one of the weird ones, um, <laughs> you know. And uh, so we have we have a list of the plays that all the plays that Kentucky Shakespeare has done for a long time. And every year we try to choose one that either has title recognition or for some reason we think people really want to come see it. It's a, a comedy starring Greg and Abigail Maupin, who everyone love. Um, so we that'll be the one that everyone will definitely want to come see. And that'll make us afford to do this weird history that has a part two in the title that no one's <laughs> going to want to come see. Right. Right. Except that, you know, our audiences continue to surprise us. We had 950 people a week ago tonight wow. to that's, see Henry the Fourth Part that's Two. Awesome. Right? This history that no one's heard of. And people think the histories are boring. So I, I, to me, that's a testament to the smart audience members of Louisville. And it's a testament to what we've been building up over the past few years. Are there any Shakespeare plays that you haven't yet done? Or yes. have you? There are. Yeah. Okay. There's some, you know. I love Shakespeare's writing, but there are some that are, are not as good as others. <laughs> there's a there's a, a somewhat of a push in Shakespeare land to to complete the canon, and that's not it's not a goal of ours. You know, we want we're, we're doing the plays that speak to us that we think will speak to our audiences, so we don't feel like we have to do Henry the Sixth Part Three or Time in of Athens because we don't have to. <laughs> well, I want to ask a question about, is this relatively new, taking Shakespeare plays to the parks? It, it seems like that has not been going on for a terribly long period of time. Could you give us some more information about that? Yeah, I would love to talk about that. So we, the, the company, Kentucky Shakespeare, has actually been touring to schools even longer than we've been performing in Central Park. Um, so that's always been a part of our thing, um, doing a condensed piece of Shakespeare. And then when Matt started six years ago, he wrote a grant to Metro Council to bring that same cutting of Hamlet that he was doing that year out to a couple of parks. We call it the Shakespeare in the Parks Tour with an S, which is, again, part of our mission of accessibility to bring the play to people all over the city. And since it's grown every year, so this past year with our with our tour of, of Macbeth, we went to 29 parks. Um, and the audiences grow every year as well. Once people start to know what it actually is that we're doing, um, more people come out. So those those tours are, you know, still professional actors. Those are sort of a bridge. We condense them down to 80 or 90 minutes. And um, so no intermission. And it's Simplified technically, so uh, simple costumes, simple sets, simple props, um, enough that can all fit in a van <laughs> with six actors and a stage manager. <laughs> now, those don't happen, though, during the summer series, do they? No. Okay. They're, we do them in the spring. So we this one opened in uh, March. So it'll be March, April, May. But as we keep adding more and more parks, 
it keeps getting longer and longer. So that's the thing. We, that's the thing we keep talking about. Although I'll say, I don't want to. I don't want to add too much of a bummer to the conversation. But with the current mm. budget, we don't know how much of that funding we're going to be able to get next year. We did expand this year to outside Metro Council districts. And so, like, the mayor of St. Matthews brought us in mm-hmm. and the mayor of Mount Washington brought us out to, to do stuff there. So those those plays are also free for people to come to, but the, the entities pay us to come there. So I recently had an experience in a school where one of your all's people came and did Shakespeare with the students, and it was all about rhythm and all that stuff. And it was great. The kids got to use the uh, sound table, turntable. So can you tell us a little bit, is that the only program that you offer or are there other ones? No, there are so many. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, So our education program is amazing. We're the largest in-school touring arts provider in the state. So our our programs go everywhere. So this one that we were just talking about, the spring tour, is part of the education program, really. So we go to schools and we couple it with workshops sometimes and Q&A always. But we also send out two-actor tours. So we do a two-actor version of some full-length play that usually involves puppets or audience participation for the crowd scenes. That two-actor tour also goes to the libraries all around Louisville, and it goes out into the state. And then we also, on those two-actor teams, we do a Boy Meets Girl Meets Shakespeare, which is a whole, which is a scene from a comedy and a history and a tragedy uh, interspersed with education about Shakespeare and about, you know, that time period and all that. Um, and also conversations that are tied to core content um, and sometimes conversations tied to like bullying or healthy relationships or whatever is in the text of that particular play. And then we have specialized programs like where you were talking about hip hop Shakespeare, where that's usually just one um, our educator goes out with that tour, where he talks about the sonnets and rhythm and he, and how that relates to contemporary hip hop music today. We have a couple of other shows that go out. We have Ira Aldridge, which is a one man show about the first African American man to perform Shakespeare's leading roles. And we have a million things: stage combat, staging Shakespeare. We do professional development for teachers. You do camps, you do summer camps. we do camps. summer camps, yeah. So that's all the stuff we do in the schools during the cold months, as we call them. And then we do summer camps in the summer. The camps are really cool. So they're, they're from ages 4 to 18 in different groups, of course, and different lengths of time based on the age of the students as well. So they do a week or three weeks with their teachers and with their group, and then they get to perform on our stage at the end of their week or several weeks. So that's always really cool. We get everybody, all the actors come out from backstage to watch that for sure because it's so amazing to watch these little kids and these tabards that they've made, you know, with props that they've made do like Macbeth, you know, it's amazing. Do those camps go on all summer long? I mean, are there still upcoming yep. camps? There are still upcoming camps. KYShakespeare.com. <laughs> little plug there. About it. Yeah. Um, and, but the biggest one we do, the one that's like that you actually have to audition to get into is the Globe Players Camp, which is for high school students. And they do a full length Shakespeare play on our stage. And this year it's Twelfth Night. And our director of education, Kyle Ware, directs that and he teaches the, the students. So they get intensive classes with Kyle plus rehearsals for five weeks. And then they have four nights of performances on our stage. And this year it's Twelfth Night. They're always really good. I'm always so impressed with them. So I, I'm curious because I've been tinkering with the idea of asking my students to memorize uh, a monologue. So do you recommend that? I'm just curious from a... Yes. 
And here's why. What age are your students? Uh, high school, middle and high school. So when it's so much easier for younger people to memorize things, it's so much easier. And so, yes, you should make them do that. The monologues that I learned and did in high school, I still remember. The last play that I did three years ago, nothing. There's (laughs) nothing left of it at all. The poem that I memorized to audition for stage one when I was in third grade, still in there. Poetry is a lot easier to memorize than, than prose if that's useful for your students. Okay. Because in high school, I had to memorize some things. Yeah. And I can still I can still remember sure. them, too. So right. I, I just wanted to get some validation that this idea I should I, proceed with. So Yes. And now 100%. all of your students are going <laughs> to be going the big thumbs down. That's so good, though. I mean, you, it's also a great party trick. Like, if you can still <laughs> recite the Gettysburg Address at, like, at a cocktail party when you're 30, right. you'll, you'll be the hit. Well, the, and I think for what me, kind of cocktail parties do I go to? Well, you're wrong. A lot of people, when they try to read Shakespeare, it's really hard because it's it's written in an English that we don't we don't yeah. speak like that yeah. anymore. Right. But when you see it acted out on the stage, you can understand it, even if you don't totally understand the diction that they're using. So, how does that work? It's such that's such a good question, and that's another way that I think that. We all at Kentucky Shakespeare are of the same mind on this, right? If you come to see a Shakespeare play and you don't know anything about the plot, you don't think you know Shakespeare, you don't think you like Shakespeare, if you just like sit there and sort of breathe for the first two or three minutes, you'll start to hear it. It'll start to come to you. Also, because the actors are great and they know what they're saying, they have ways of of explaining to you what they're saying with their inflections and their body language yeah Yeah. right so you can tell you might not know exactly what that woman is saying but you can tell by the look on her face by the gestures that she's making that she's sad or in love or and so the story comes across even if you think you don't understand Shakespeare reading Shakespeare is the worst because you know because you have to like you have to side by side it with a dictionary and that's no fun yeah but (laughs) Sorry, English okay, teacher. I'm like, <laughs> sorry, English teacher, Perry. So, but that's, cut this part. <laughs> but that's why this is well. First of all, it's why you should have Kentucky Shakespeare come to your classroom. But it's also why you should have them read it out loud. The other magical thing about Shakespeare is just if you put the words in your mouth, the feeling of the words tells you what they mean. One of the, my favorite exercises to do with people who don't, who aren't Shakespeare people, if I go to teach a workshop or whatever, is to do these Shakespearean insults. <laughs> and you, and you know, you, you have people read these insults out loud, and they don't make any sense. They're not words that I, that have any meaning, but it doesn't matter. They're fun to say, and you know, when you say when you say these words, you poppycock minimus, is you know that it's <laughs> that it's something that it means something. So I'm sure that there's somebody in your staff who keeps stats. Has the Shakespeare Festival grown in attendance in the time that you have been there? Or what's that look like? Two answers to that. One is we all keep stats (laughs) because it's important. For funding, I would assume. For funding, mm -hmm. yes. It's how we get grants. And it's how we show our board and and our patrons that we're doing it. We're doing the thing. Our numbers have grown enormously in the past six years last summer we saw we saw 30,000 oh my gosh yeah it's intense that's that's mind-boggling yeah and wonderful Uh, and wonderful yeah yeah 
So I know with all the rain, you've had to cancel a lot of performances. Does that have any effect besides just you're not being able to do a performance? I mean, does that affect you've had to miss so many days and you can't do your play and you don't have people coming on those days? Does that affect you monetarily in any way? Yes. Even though the plays are free, we make money in the park. We ask for donations and, you know, those those dollar bills and $20 bills that people drop into the bags that the actors carry around, that adds up. Um, and so it's significant when we can't do it for four days. <laughs> um, Mother Nature. So, and, you know, we take, we get a, a, a portion from the food trucks and we get a portion from the, or we get, make most of the money from the bar and we sell t-shirts and cool swag in the gift shop. So when we're not doing a show, we're not making money um, and we're still paying everyone. So it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for us when we have to cancel shows. We do our very, very best to not cancel shows. You know, when do you, when do you make that call? You know, if it's raining at five o'clock, do you call the show for us? The answer is no, hard no. We don't call until it's showtime. And if it's still pouring down rain when it's showtime, we'll say, all right, we give, we're not going to do the show. (laughs) So this is, this is the last question. But what is it that you love about live theater and what do you think that it offers the average person and why should they come and see theater? For me, live theater is one of the most important remaining democratic institutions that we have, especially at Kentucky Shakespeare, especially outdoor theater. It's it's one of the very few places on earth in Louisville, on earth and in Louisville, (laughs) where you know, you can see a homeless person sitting next to the mayor. It's true. It happens. You know, you can see kids from the neighborhood who just like ran over because there wasn't anything good on TV that night sitting next to Shakespeare scholars and everyone's happy and everyone's listening to the same story and have live people in front of you going through emotions, saying beautiful poetry and telling a story that all of us here in this amphitheater are experiencing together. We're all listening together. We're all thinking different thoughts, but we're all together and listening to the story that's being told to us by human beings right there in front of us. And all of us in the amphitheater, the thousand people in the audience and the 20 people on stage, all of us experience that 12th UPS plane that's flying overhead. <laughs> All of us experience the fact that the rain just started at this big, important moment of the play. It all it the, just, just started at the most magical possible moment, and we all experienced that together. We all experienced it together when that dog ran up on stage during the curtain call and wanted to dance with the actors. Like, that's that doesn't happen at the grocery store. No, you know? that doesn't happen even even at like a basketball game. It's not the, it's not the same. Well, thank you so much for telling us everything there is to know about the Kentucky Shakespeare Festival. And we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, Amy's going to talk with Carrie and I about what we're all reading. Okay, Carrie, so what are you reading? So I started a book. I had heard about it probably on NPR, but it's called Dark Matter by Blake Crouch, and it says it was a New York bestseller. But what interested me about this is um, when I heard about it, it's about time travel, sort of. It's about the multiverse. And so one of my favorite movies of all time is Inception. I like that one, too. uh, Because I've watched it any number of times, and I still don't get it. And 
I just keep it's a little mind it. bending. It is totally mind bending, and this book is meant mind bending. So it's about this man named Jason Dessen, and he's a physics professor. And he goes to have drinks with a friend, and he's more or less kidnapped. The guy who kidnaps him is wearing a mask. And he wakes up in this place where everybody knows he's still Jason Dessen, but he's not the same Jason Dessen. So he's, instead of being a physics professor, he is a physics researcher who has discovered the way to get to parallel universes. And so it's about his struggle to deal with this and to hopefully find his way back to where he's supposed to be. So I'm about, I, I have wanted to finish it for the last couple of days, but I've had other things that have kept me. And so I've got 30 pages left. It's really interesting. That's all I'll say. I don't want to give it to It's hard for me to explain what it's about because I don't totally understand what it's all about. But it's making me think lots of... But it's not so confusing that it makes you not want to, to no, read it or finish. No. It, it makes me want to finish and then it makes me want to go back and read it again to see, did I understand this completely? It's, it's like mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Yeah, mind-blowing. If, if you like Inception, if you like books about, you know, this may not be the only world with Amy in it and Carrie in it. There might be another world or several other worlds with Amy and Carrie in it, but we're not doing this radio show. We're doing, we're running a bakery or something, you know, that all of our choices lead to these branches. Would you categorize it as science fiction or thriller? How, how would, it's a like if you were going to go look for it in a bookstore, where do you, what yes, section probably, would it be in? Probably both. I would say more sci-fi. But it, it's definitely suspenseful because you're wondering, like, well, I have heard of that happen. book, yeah, I, and it's on my bookshelf. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard very good things about it. But now I definitely, yeah, it's it's good. Want to read it? How about you, Amy? So I I've been on a rabbit hole deep dive. I like to read books about the places I'm going to visit before I go. Because I feel like it en enhances my, my vacation. I'm kind of a nerd like that. Um, so I recently went to New Mexico, to Santa Fe. And so I was looking for books about that area. And the most famous book about Santa Fe is a book by Willa Cather called Death Comes for the Archbishop. That's the book I'm going to talk about now. But I also read three other books because I couldn't just stop with one. I read like every single book that I could that I could find that had something to do with New Mexico or the American Southwest. And they were pretty varied. So this one, you know, is a classic. Another one I read was like a more contemporary, more, uh, I would call sort of women's literature. Uh, and then I read one that was a memoir about a, a gentleman who raised a baby buffalo who was orphaned. And then I'm getting ready to read a uh, Navajo Nation mystery. Anyway, I was kind of all over the place. But what I'm going to talk about today is <laughs> Death Comes for the Archbishop. And it's a very quiet, contemplative book. It was written in 1927. And it is considered by many to be in the top 100 English novels of the 20th century. I haven't read it. Well, you need to. <laughs> I guess I need to give my degree back. It is the story of Father Latour 
and his vicar, and they are sent to Santa Fe, New Mexico in the 1850s to establish a church in this new territory of the United States. And it's based on a true person, uh, Bishop Lamy, who was a French Franciscan priest. And she follows his life fairly closely. The book spans 40 years from when he first goes to his ultimate death. That's not a uh, spoiler, I don't think, <laughs> considering how it is called Death Comes for the Archbishop. So it's a book about his experiences with the indigenous people that he encounters, the the Spanish that had already, missionaries that had already come there, with the Mexicans in the South, and sort of the confluence of all of those peoples, as well as, as his own spirituality and faith. But it's also a book about his friendship with his, his vicar. In many ways, they're like opposites, and they have an interesting relationship. What I will say about this book was that if you are going to the Southwest, especially in New Mexico, it is almost like a travel guide, literally, because a lot of the places that he goes, he has to go and visit the different Pueblos. A lot of those Pueblos are still there and they're not that much different than they were when he visited in the 1850s, except for there might be a big a Native American casino. So I read it before I went, and it was so interesting once I was there to be able to see the cathedral that they built that they talk about in the book, and it's actually there. So I don't know that it's necessarily a book for everyone. Like I said, it's a very kind of quiet, contemplative book. But if you are interested in the history of the American Southwest, or if you're going to Santa Fe, I would I would highly recommend it. It it complemented my, my trip quite well. <laughs> and Amy Attaway, what are what you, you reading? reading? Wow, that was good unison, you guys. <laughs> that, okay, I warned you in advance that this is super nerdy. but the, We're all about nerdy. This is all about nerdy. I don't, I don't have a lot of time to read books, which is regretful, but um, the most recent book I read was called uh, The Year of the Fat Night by Anthony Shear, um, who's an actor super famous Shakespeare actor who played Falstaff in Henry IV Part One and Two, and kept a journal with drawings of the whole experience. So it was great. It was great to read it. Um, he's, of course, at the RSC, and his husband is the artistic director of the RSC. So he's got this, this flat on the banks of the Avon River in Stratford, and then he went to his work table and watched the swans. I'm like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's not my life, um, nor is it my Falstaff's life, Barrett. It's about his year of figuring out how to approach this character and how to get into the character and all the things he discovered along the way. So it was insightful and really interesting. So did you use this as far as your directing? I definitely learned things from it. It was, it was a part of part of the puzzle for sure. He's a uh, very well known and this Falstaff was kind of legendary, the, his portrayal of it. And so I, I learned a lot by reading, by reading his thoughts about the character. What about his portrayal was so uh, compelling? Yeah. He is a recovering addict as a human. And so he approached Falstaff as an al alcoholic, like oh, wow. uh, as mm -hmm. like our contemporary understanding of, of right. alcoholism. From, from how he described it in the book, made his Falstaff more sympathetic and also sadder. That, that wasn't 
my interpretation or our interpretation because I don't I don't think that the drinking is the most important part of who Falstaff is. But it was really interesting to read about his journey and his process of deciding to do it that way and how the rest of the cast and the director responded to it and the things that he discovered in the text along the way as as he was working on his portrayal. That was probably the most interesting stuff was the little things about the text that he either got hung up on or really relished. And so hearing about his journey through the text was really useful for me. Did a Shakespeare person reading a Shakespeare <laughs> memoir. Who'd have thunk well, it? Who'd have it? But we love nerdy. I, I, I will bring you nerdy <laughs> every day of the week. <laughs> well, we are going to come back in just a minute and do our top five. We are in the studio with Amy Attaway of Kentucky Shakespeare, and we would like to, for her to talk about her top fives. So, I'm so excited. Amy, what, besides Shakespeare in the Park, which is free, what is one of your top free events or activities in Louisville? I have two answers to this one. I don't know if that's allowed, but I'm doing it. Oh, sure. uh, we'll allow it. We'll, we'll <laughs> okay. allow it. Edit it. Top but, six. <laughs> before... I had my kid. I used to love going to Waterfront Wednesday, and I will someday love going to Waterfront Wednesday again. Yes. But now I really love the splash parks everywhere, all of them, all over the city. She loves them, and therefore I love them. Where are the splash parks that you go? Is there one in particular that you like? Well, I go to the one at the Parklands at Floyd's mm -hmm. Fort because mm -hmm. I live out there, mm -hmm. and also the one uh, on the waterfront is great. Mm hmm well, that kind of spills into what I was going to say because I had an answer for this one, which is the Parklands of Floyd's Fork is m my favorite free activity in Louisville. And it's fairly new. But if you haven't been there, it's in the very eastern and southernmost part of the county. And it connects four major parks, and they're connected with, like, a little trail system. You can drive from one to another. It has splash parks. It has hiking trails. It has spots to kayak or canoe. It has fishing holes. And it runs along Floyd's Fork, which begins in Henry County and goes to Bullock County. Now, there are no parks up in Henry County, I don't think. But I think they just completed the one on the southern end that kind of goes in um, to Bullock County, but there's a hundred miles of trails for hiking and biking. And there's 19 miles worth of canoeing area. Actually, you can start at Shelbyville road and get over to Bardstown road. And there's sports fields, there's playgrounds, there's beautiful like meadows that you, you can hike through. It's, it's just an amazing space. Ours were similar. The two, <laughs> the two Amy's had a mind yes, meld with amazing. that one. <laughs> All right, Amy Attaway, yes. uh, your top Shakespeare play to movie adaptation. So I was uh, intrigued by the recent BBC Hollow Crown, which is exactly the place that I'm doing right now, which my, my four. And I was... I was always super charmed by the Much Ado with Kenneth Branagh, Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson. All right. Okay, Amy. So besides Shakespeare, do you have a top play or theater experience? And that could be here in Louisville or elsewhere. A few years ago at the Humana Festival, one of my favorite playwrights, Jordan Harrison, had a play in the Bingham Theater, which is a very intimate theater um, called The Grown Up 
which um, which I loved. It was intimate and intense and beautiful and strange. And I saw it twice because I couldn't figure it out. Um, it was one of those that you're just still thinking about it. I really love that play. And tomorrow I'm seeing Hamilton. Oh, well. So Carrie we'll just went to I haven't I seen it yet, it, but yeah. she saw it. A week and a half ago, and it was amazing. Have you seen it? I've heard it. I've listened to okay. the cast recording a lot. Oh, it was amazing. She's pretty hard to please. Um, I'm a little picky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, top guilty pleasure. I think that right now I am eating a lot of ice cream. <laughs> from Do you the have a favorite? Oh, park. okay. Okay. Say. The Louisville dessert truck mm. in the park. I eat it every night, and it's bad for you. I mean, that's not healthy. But guilty pleasure. Yeah, yeah that's right. right. That's what a the guilty pleasure is. The cookie witch from the Louisville dessert truck. Oh, Can't get enough. All right. And do you have a top Shakespearean insult? So I've played Hermia in Midsummer Night's Dream twice. And Hermia's whole shtick is that she's small. So you see, this is on, like, baby onesies a lot. Um, though she be a little, she is fierce. Yes. That's about Hermia. And so there's a lot of great ones in there, which I think about a lot because I am small. And so, like, you bead, you acorn, you minimus, those sort of things. <laughs> those are the ones I like to think about. I have a favorite. Well, it sticks in my head, but it's from Macbeth. The rump-fed runyon cried. Mm-hmm. So I just... I like that. It has a nice ring to mm-hmm. it. That's a good so. one. <laughs> so, Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. We had such a great time talking to you. And I encourage everybody out there listening to go, even if you can't go see Henry the Fourth Part Two, to go see one of the other plays that they're offering this summer. How long does the season end? We, last? Yeah, we're there pretty much every night but Monday through August 4th. Okay, so you still have plenty of time to go see. And Henry the 4th Part 2, the two-week run ends Sunday. Okay, but it will be coming back. So check the schedule on their website to see, mm-hmm, to see when those plays are going to be. And King Lear comes after this one, correct? Yep. Okay, so we will catch you all next time. Thanks for joining us today. We're under construction and currently switching sites for our webpage. So for show notes, you can find them at our current blog site. That link can be found on our Facebook page. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. And if you are a member of a book club or are sharing reading in some way, please contact us at any of these sites as well. We always want to talk to fellow readers. Leave a message on our Perks line at 502-509-7736. A huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org, Podbean, and SoundCloud. <laughs>